We are thankful, Lord, for your faithfulness. It is great. Your covenant is made with us, and you will not turn back. You will do all that you have said you will do. Your scriptures are true. You're not a guy, a God that should lie, neither the son of a man that you should repent. Have I not spoken and shall I not make it good? So we praise you for your faithfulness throughout all generations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to John chapter 7. And we will read uh, verses 40 through 53. John 7, beginning at verse 40. Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him, and some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees have believed in him, has he? But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus said to them, he who came to him before being one of them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own home. Now we have seen in Jesus' dealing with these Jews, he is uh, for a chapter so, and he's been teaching that you've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood, meaning you really have to believe in me. In that eating of his flesh, he is going to give his very body to be given up as an atonement for sin. And drinking his blood, he will shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Obviously, Jesus is speaking metaphorically, but they are so tied in to an understanding, a a hyper-literal that doesn't understand what Jesus was saying. They think he was talking about cannibalism. So we see here that in this multitude that Jesus is dealing with, we got to remember what he's been saying. The only way someone's going to come and believe in Jesus, Jesus says, if my father draws him, and if my father draws him, I will surely raise him up on the last day. And Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the father draw him. We've said that is the doctrine of effectual calling or irresistible grace. 
if you're if God has chosen you from the foundation of the world, he will at some point draw you to Jesus and your eyes will be open, your ears will be open spiritually to see Jesus for who he is. Now, this multitude breaks down into about four groups of people. First group says, hearing Jesus preach, teach, they say, well, he is the prophet. If you look there at verse 40, some were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Now, what do they mean by that? They're actually referring to, well, he's probably the prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, because Moses said, who, by the way, was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Moses said, there will be one who comes after me who is greater, and you, you must listen to him. So down through the centuries, the teachings, even in the synagogues, was that there was a great prophet to come. So they, some thought, well, he's surely one of these prophets. Now, if you notice what verse 41 says, others, besides those who were saying he's the, the prophet, others were saying, this is the Christ. Now, notice that there is a difference here. Some said he's the prophet. Others were saying he's not just the prophet. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So you can recognize someone as a great prophet, but not necessarily have given yourself over to that prophet. And one of the best examples of this, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Now there's a great crowd following Jesus. And Jesus, beginning in verse 25 of Luke 14, will turn to this crowd and really say some incredible things, hard things to these, these people. Notice what he says in verse 25. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Therefore, salt is good, 
But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That stating we said before, you hearing what I'm saying? If you've got spiritual ears, then you better take heed. I mean, the cost of discipleship was great. Remember, a disciple, remember in John 6, because of Jesus' teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, many were offended and never walked with him anymore. Most, and they were called disciples of Jesus. And we made the comment then, a disciple simply means a follower. So there were followers. And here were some followers who believed that he was the prophet. But others were saying he's not just the prophet. He is the Christ. Meaning these are some people. um, But even then, if you think about these people, that in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that you're entrusting yourself to Jesus. You know, when I was a college student, I got first, uh, I was very taken back one time when I was talking to someone about the gospel. And they acknowledged to me, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I said, Oh, then you're a Christian already. He says, I didn't say I was a Christian. I just said I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It never dawned on me that somebody could actually believe that he is the very Son of God, but then acknowledge, now that doesn't mean I I gave my life to him. Jesus says, you could even acknowledge me as a Christ, but are you willing to take up your cross daily and follow me? because that's what it's going to take. So you had those two groups of people. And then you had others, uh, verse 41, it said, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was, there was a third group that was prejudiced against Jesus because they said, well, he, he can't be the Christ because the scripture says that the Christ will come from the, the, uh, the line of David and will be born in Bethlehem. And you know what? They were partially right. Let's let's look at those two two passages. First of all, turn to Isaiah 11.1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. 
Now, Jesus in the book of Revelation appeals to that very verse saying he is the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, the Omega. He is that promised one. Jesse was David's father. And so, yes, Jesus came from that line. We know from 2 Samuel 7 in the promise of the, of the Davidic covenant that there would be one coming from David who would be greater than all, who was really the Messiah. So they were right in that. Then turn over to the minor prophet of Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is a messianic prophecy. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. It was understood that the Messiah would not only be from the line of David, but he would be also born in this little town of Bethlehem. Now, here's the problem. So they were right in saying this. So when they, going back to our text, so this third group who was critical of Jesus saying, well, there's nothing Nothing says he'd come out of Galilee. They knew, in one sense, that he was from Galilee. He was, the thing about it is, they failed to remember where he was born. If they had bothered to look at the registry in Bethlehem, they would have seen that he was born in Bethlehem, but they didn't. We know that shortly after he was born, remember, well, Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth and the only way they ended up in Bethlehem anyway is because of the census that Caesar Augustus demanded. So they had to go back to their original uh, place and it says since Joseph was from the line of David, that's how they ended up in Bethlehem just at the precise time now, wasn't that lucky? <laughs> Just at the precise time that Mary was ready to give birth and gives birth to him in Bethlehem. They should have known better that uh, just because Jesus was uh, raised in Nazareth, uh, and, 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 but his hometown, you'd have to say where he was born was Bethlehem. So we're told in our text, there, take a look, verse 43 of John 7, it says, so there arose a division in the multitude because of him. So this division is, is he, is he the prophet of Moses? Is he the Christ? How can he be the Christ? 
because it says that nothing good comes out of Galilee and Jesus is from Galilee. So how can he be uh, the Christ? And so there was just turmoil. They were divided among themselves. You know, Jesus in his whole ministry was one of dividing people. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Look at Matthew 10. And let's start at verse 32. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his, uh, his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. He who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. And he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Jesus stirred up trouble by the very nature of who he was. And his teaching always stirred up trouble in many respects because you're going to find several groups of people just like the apostle Paul found when he went to Athens debating with the Greek philosophers the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophers some it says you idle babbler you know because neither of those believed in a resurrection of the dead and Paul was preaching Jesus raised from the dead so they thought he was a lunatic, they thought he was just a wacko. And then it says, others said, you know, this is interesting, we'll hear you, we'll hear you again. That's a second group. And then you had a third group that says he actually believed. And that's the same situation that Jesus was in. Whenever he spoke, you're going to have some that are just going to be scratching their head and say, this is interesting, I'm not sure. Others says, I there is no way this can't, man can be who he claims to be, so they're hostile. Then there are others who do actually believe in him. And they are the ones, by the way, whom the Father has called and come to believe in Jesus. So, and then th there's a fourth group. 
This fourth group we see in verse 44, look at the text, uh, back in John 7. This fourth group, verse 44, and some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Some said, you're the prophet. Some said, you're the Christ. No, he can't be the Christ because we know his family. He's from Galilee. We know the Messiah is not from there. They just didn't know all the information. And yet there's another who were so hostile against Jesus, they wanted to seize him and to kill him. But it says in our text, no one laid hands on him. I'm gonna throw this out. We've talked about this before. Why did no one lay hands on him? It wasn't his time. We've looked at texts that already said it was not his hour. Some wanted to throw him off a cliff at the synagogue in Nazareth. He escaped right through their midst. And the Bible says it, it was not his hour. You know, in this regard, the hour had not yet come. And which means the hour of him being arrested and being put to death. I want you to turn over to Matthew 26 for a moment. Matthew 26. And look at verses 45 and 46. Now Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane praying. And and, and shortly, he's going to be arrested. And in verse uh, 44 and 45, he says, And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So now he wasn't arrested before because it was not his hour. Now he says, no, the hour has come. Turn over to Luke 22. And look at verses 52 and 53. Luke 22, 52 and 53. Now, he's been betrayed. This, this group from the Sanhedrin has come to arrest Jesus. And he says to him in verse 52, and Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple, 
and elders who had come against him. Have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. In other words, the hour has come finally. And so nothing was ever going to happen to Jesus until it was the appropriate time for it to occur. Predestined by God, as we're told, in Acts chapter 2. Now look at verse, turn back to John 7, look at verse 45. It says, The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? Okay. The Sanhedrin, which were the, the, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they had sent out officers to go arrest Jesus. They had given out the command. Let's put it this way. They gave out the warrant for his arrest. And they were expecting to see Jesus. And when these guys come back, Without Jesus, why don't you have him? Now look at what these officers said. Verse 46. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Now, what... what, They, when they went to arrest Jesus and they had heard him, they said, we have never seen anybody like this. And, you know, there's a great truth here. Jesus came with great wisdom and power and grace and convincing clearness sweetness in many regards in what he said, except when he was speaking to the Pharisees like Jess talked about this morning. And we see here, and we know elsewhere in Scripture that people said they were amazed at him. Well, first of all, we know the chief priests, they were amazed at Jesus' understanding because they've already said he's not, he's not educated he, didn't, he was not taught in our synagogues, in other words, our seminary. So how does he know the law the way he does if he's uneducated? And when others heard him, the crowds, the multitude says, Jesus speaks with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. That's interesting. They mentioned the contrast. Jesus speaking with authority, The scribes and the Pharisees don't have authority. Well, what's the difference? Well, Jesus being the God-man and Jesus being who he is speaks truth and speaks truth because he's from the bosom of the Father. 
He's speaking authoritatively. As one who knows what he's talking about, there probably was a passion in what he said. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, they would just read the law in a way, probably very boringly. But that's not how Jesus came. He had an authority as if, I'm telling you something from God. Listen, remember what he said, he who got ears to hear, let him hear. So there was a way how he spoke that people realized not only what he is saying, but probably how he was saying it. Same way that Paul, when he came to the Thessalonians in Thessalonica, it says, and Paul was not the first one to ever come to Thess- through Thessal- uh, Thessalonica. There were other itinerant preachers, but we're told in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, that when they heard Paul preach, they knew that it was the word of God. Well, how'd they know that? Because the spirit, well, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5 says, they were convinced by the power of the Holy Spirit gave them that conviction. I remember Joe uh, used to say, I've never forgotten what what Joe said many times to young preachers. He says, the worst thing that can be for a preacher is to be boring. I kind of just settled in. I said, yeah, I would agree with that. By the way, one time we had a presbytery meeting years ago when we were down in Dunwoody. We had a guy come who was under rush duty, studied under, uh, well, he, he, he was a rush duty. I, he, he loved, read all the books of rush duty like most of us had, okay? So he was forward to get ordained at presbytery and you, you, had, to, you had to give a sermon before presbytery because you got to prove before presbytery you can preach. He gets through, <laughs> and there's just silence among us. And Joe, it was Joe who said, that was a good lecture, but that was not preaching. And uh, <laughs> he said, well, well I, I've studied under, I mean, I'm, I, what I said was what Russian has said, and I remember Joe said, and several others said, yeah, but none of us believed that as great as Rushton he was, we didn't believe he was a preacher either. He was a great teacher, lecturer, but he was not a preacher. Joe took him back in the office, <laughs> talked to him for a while, and says, I- I'm not sure we can ordain you because uh, we just don't know if you got the gift of preaching. So here it is that these people that heard Jesus, these officers said, there's no one, no one talks like this man. He's unusual. I got I to gotta read a little excerpt. I've told you about the book, Retracing the Beautiful Steps of My Great-Great-Grandfather, His Spiritual Diary that I had the privilege in 2008 of retracing his preaching steps. I want to read you just one section 
in his diary. His diary is only a spiritual diary. That's, that's all his diary is, a spiritual diary of his preaching for over 60 years. Here's his uh, diary, what it says. December 26th, 1841. Billingsboro and Orbling, 10-mile walk, spoke twice. These were mission places, preached in the open air, two large congregations, powerful time. While I was singing down the street of the latter place, an old magistrate offered an ungodly man a sum of money to go drive me out of town. He accepted the offer and started to do his work, but when he arrived, I was preaching and God was wonderfully blessing the word. The word went with power to his heart. He was thoroughly awakened to a sense of his danger and returned home with a determination to lead a new life. A short time after, he got converted and afterwards became a local preacher. Glory to God, one more soul for Christ. Hallelujah. <laughs> so when, when I went on that journey, I knew his preaching circuit and I knew this story. I had to go to, what I would do is I'd go to every one of those towns and I would look up what happened. So I had, I had to go to Billingsboro where this thug was hired to run him out of town but got converted instead. That's what happens sometimes. People come and when God goes ready to work, he will work. I was telling some young men when I was up in Kingsport not long ago, uh, I said, have you guys, do you guys know about Daniel Baker, the great uh, Presbyterian preacher of the 19th century? They said, no. I said, you need to get his book. We got his book out there in the foyer. It's called Making the Hearts of Many Glad. It's an autobiography of Daniel Baker, the, what I call the George Whitfield of the 19th century, an incredible preacher. He's got a story similar where there was a, a, a guy that was antagoni antagonistic to the faith for over like 20 years. Why this man came to church, I don't know. I guess people, you know, went to church even though they weren't believers. And this guy who was antagonistic for all those years was sitting on the front row and Baker was preaching and all of a sudden he could see tears in the eyes of this this hardened soul but realized something was going on. He came down out of the pulpit, came over to the man and talked to him and this hardened sinner was converted right there. And he says in his diary, he left that day rejoicing in Christ. You just never know what's going to happen. Men who come as skeptics, men who are come to go run a, a, an ancestor like mine out of town. But earlier, these officers who've been told, "Don't you need to come back with this Jesus. But they wouldn't come back. Now, we're not told if all those were genuine believers. But let's put it this way, a seed was sown, was it not? Because they didn't deliver Jesus. <laughs> and so what we see here, um, <clears throat> these men told the Pharisees, 
and delivered. Now, what was the response of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin? This, these were the religious leaders like Jess was talking about this morning. What did they say to these officers that didn't bring back Jesus as they were supposed to? Look, look what the text says. Verse 47, the Pharisees therefore answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? Don't tell us you've been deceived by this charlatan. I mean, that's what they were saying to him. You haven't been deceived by this man, have you? And notice how they just rub it in even further because it says, verse 48, no one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him. Has he? We're the religious leaders. Has, do you know of any of us that believed in this man? In other words, it was a rhetorical question, meaning they should, the officers should have known the answer to, well, no. Well, that ought to tell you something. We're the religious leaders. So the fact we haven't believed in him should say something to you. And then it gets even more ugly in how they treat these officers because the, the Greek word here, well, verse uh, 49, look at verse 49. But this multitude, uh, the Sanhedrin is speaking here, but this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Now the Greek word there is oklos autos, meaning this rabble people. That's what they said. You know this multitude out here? They're a bunch of rabble. Now who's gonna believe them? Do they know the law like we do? I don't think so. They're, they're just a bunch of underlings. We are the custodians of the law. We are the Pharisees. We have studied of the law. Well, as Jess pointed out very aptly today, just because you may have studied, you sure didn't apply it, you hypocrites. This group of people that the Sanhedrin was referring to, many of which, in addition to the, the officers who were sent out to arrest Jesus, a lot of this crowd who's wondering, is he the prophet, is he the Messiah, or what? They're just a bunch of rabble people. They don't know nothing. You know, years later, we're going to see, it's much, wasn't much different in Roman Catholicism in the, in the Middle Ages. Well, yeah, during the Middle Ages, because Rome, they always did their mass in Latin. How many common folks knew Latin? Virtually nobody. Well, in fact, most people couldn't even read, okay? Much less, if they read, they didn't even know Latin. You know, for the longest time, even up to the 17th century, all theology works were written in Latin. All the way up, all the way through the 17th, 18th century, 
If you were going to know some theology books, you had better know Latin. So the common people, they didn't know Latin. They kept the people in darkness deliberately. Why? (laughs) We are the church. And what we say is what you ought to believe. And who are you not to do what we educated churchmen believe? And they kept the people in darkness. And then you got people coming along like William Tyndall, who decides, you know, the common people have a right to the word of God. So let's translate these Latin and Greek manuscripts into the vulgar language, meaning the language of the people, so that they can read the Bible for themselves. Well, wouldn't that be wonderful? What do you... What did they do to Tyndall? They burned him at the stake. How dare you translate the Bible into the language of the common folk? And they burned him at the stake with others. They wanted, you know, if you keep people ignorant, you can manipulate them, right? You know, when they... When they Years ago, my wife and all, my wife and I saw something on the um, a channel. It was a history channel. The most, the one hundred most important people of the last thousand years, and it came down and had a group of teachers, professors. You know who was number one? My wife, about number eight. She guessed it. I didn't guess it the most influential person of the last thousand years was, I'll give you a hint, did something about this that had never been done before. Any hints? Johann Gutenberg. The printing press changed the world. As they said, uh, Shakespeare was number five. There would have been no Shakespeare without Gutenberg. And the reason the Reformation spread like wildfire was that it was because of Gutenberg's ability to print the Bible, make it available to the common man, and that's why the Reformation spread the way it did. And so what we see here that um, these these officers, these Sanhedrin, they they didn't want they they made um, they mocked the crowd, they mocked the others. Now there was a lone voice in the Sanhedrin. Verse fifty is the lone voice. Take a look. Nicodemus. Oh, we're familiar with Nicodemus, haven't we? We've run across him in John 3. In fact, the text says here, in verse 50, um, he who came to him, Jesus, before being one of them, 
Remember what Nicodemus said when he saw Jesus, he came to Jesus by night? He said, no, we know you've got to be a, a prophet from God because no one can do the things that you do unless he's a real prophet. Then Jesus says, well, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. He still didn't understand, but we know, do know from the scriptures. At this point, we're not sure if Nicodemus is identifying himself openly with Jesus, but he's defending Jesus in one sense. Because notice what he says, how he defended. He says, now that, in other words, you know, hold on, guys, hold on now. Verse 51, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears him and knows what he is doing, does it? Now, I mean, in one sense, this was a, a jab into the ribs, Nicodemus to his fellow Sanhedrin. Who, what, did they had what had they just said? This rabble does not know the law of God like we do. And Nicodemus comes along and says, does not our law say you cannot condemn a man unless you hear him first? And guess where he's quoting from, by the way, we're told, well, turn over to Deuteronomy 1, verses 16 and 17 to begin with. This is what Nicodemus was referring to. Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17. Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases before your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small, you shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear them, fear man, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, then you bring it to me and I will hear it. Now turn over a few more chapters to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 and 19. Here's what the law says. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. So Nicodemus says, you at least need to bring Jesus before you. You cannot, we cannot condemn this man unless we hear this man, of which they will bring him eventually to the Sanhedrin. Now, <clears throat> the response of the Sanhedrin to Nicodemus, if it wasn't stinging enough, but well, let's back up for a second. 
Did the Sanhedrin, like Jess was uh, preaching on this morning, did it really matter to them what the law said to begin with? Not really. Do you remember what they did in Jesus' trial that violated the law? Who can tell me what they did? Now, this obviously Jesus has not been betrayed yet. What did they do that violated the law of God when Jesus finally appeared before the Sanhedrin? Do you, do you know? They struck him for what he said, but when he came before him, he spoke, and it says in the text in Matthew 26, they brought in two false witnesses against Jesus. In other words, they paid these men off to bear false witness against Jesus. And which the law forbid, just what we read. In fact, in Deuteronomy 19, it says nobody can be convicted except by the testimony of two or more witnesses. And it says... When there are witnesses that come forward, it says the judges are to investigate thoroughly to determine if the witnesses' statements are true. And guess what happens if it turns out that my testimony is not true if I've been brought in as a witness? I get the same punishment as to what the case is. So if it's a capital case, and I lie, then I get executed, which is just, right? Because it's my false testimony that leads to a man's conviction. So these Pharisees, they could care less about the law because they, they, they will end up bribing some to come in bear false witness because they hated them because they were envious Pontius Pilate, we're told in Matthew 27, he knew, he knew why they were coming. Pontius Pilate says, because they were envious of him. That's why they had, they roused up the people to yell out Barabbas instead of Jesus. They were envious. Even the Roman uh, governor, Pilate, could see it, and he said it. You know, when... uh, By the way, this section ends with the Sanhedrin says, they try to get back at Nicodemus and said, Nicodemus, come on. You're not from Galilee, are you? Are you you trying to defend someone who's from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, here's the problem. If they had bothered to do that search, guess what they would have found? Jonah was from Galilee. Nahum was from Galilee. And they forgot about Hosea from Galilee as well. 
They didn't know the scriptures as much as they thought they knew. And if they, like I said, if they had bothered to check the registry in Bethlehem, they would have known that there was a Jesus whose mother was Mary, stepfather, Joseph, was born there. But they didn't bother. You know, even, even King Herod, we know from the scriptures, when the Magi came following the star, and they came to Herod and said, you know, we know that we're, we're here looking, following the star. We're looking for the one who's to be the king of the Jews. Well, you know, if you got power, you don't want to give up power. And Herod was an unscrupulous man. He's all, oh, when you find him, come tell me, because I'll come and worship him. Was that his idea? No. When the Magi leave, he tells the people, he inquires of the age that this king of the Jews was, so they deciphered it was probably maybe two years. So Herod says, you know what? I'll take care of this rival. Go out and kill every male child two years under. And that's exactly what they did. Fulfilling prophecy that says, there will be a cry coming like never before when, the, when they would come in and grab these little baby boys and murder them in front of their, of their parents. But at least Herod understood, you know, because he inquired of his, the chief priest, where does the scripture say this king will be born? And he said, Bethlehem. They knew it. And that's why he sent out his thugs to kill all the male children two years and under in Bethlehem. And so what we see here about Jesus, wherever Jesus goes, he creates division. Like he said, I didn't come on earth to make peace as such. I came as a sword. And, and some of your enemies will be in your own household, your own parents, your own children. Because when you're faced with Jesus, it is the moment of truth. What are you going to do with this man, Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that, that Jesus is our Redeemer. And we thank you for all that you do for us. Help us to commit our lives to you, to bear our cross for the sake of Jesus. For we ask you in his name, amen.